0: in New York go up, and successful, they still stand today, beautiful uh, designs of architecture, and they wanted to add their names to the list of some of the best bridges in the world. Problem was, they didn't have the money. (laughs) And with money, you know, there come some issues. Well, enter designer Leon Moiseff, and the first problem was the fact that his parents named him Leon, okay? You just don't do that. It's a bad idea. Uh, But Leon developed a theory, and I'm just gonna read this because it's way over my head. Uh, He developed a theory about elastic distribution, talking about horizontal bending under static wind load that would argue for stiffer main cables to absorb one half of the static wind pressure, pushing a suspended structure laterally. In other words, for those of us who like to uh, speak in English, uh, the sh- they needed shorter, stiffer girders to be able to withstand some of the winds around them. That, that was a theory, maybe shorter. And that was good news for this company because they said, if we have shorter girders, that's going to mean less money. In fact, what they did is they designed a bridge that would actually cut the cost in half. Originally, when they were looking at the plans for the Washington State Bridge um, and, and trying to model something like that here, it was going to be about $11 million to build this thing. And with this proposed design, it was going to be about $6 to build it. Now, instead of following the trusted and true design of the Washington Bridge, they went with something that was cheaper and a little bit more elegant looking, and they paid the price for it. It would prove fatal because they were not able to invest what they needed to and go back to its real design, the trusted and true one. Now... Maybe it's because guys just really struggle with taking good directions. Any guys here like you just really struggle with taking good directions? I'm definitely one of these guys, okay? There was a moment where I was, I was out visiting a friend in uh, White River Junction, Vermont, and um, you know White River Junction, Vermont doesn't have any good cell reception to begin with anyway. So even when I was gonna try to get my Maps app going, it wasn't working. But anyway, I jump on the phone with Charity just as I'm about to head out, and uh, we're, we're 35 minutes on, and I'm like, uh, these roads don't look familiar. Uh, But I got this. I got this. I'm good. No joke. It took me like an hour and a half out of my way. Totally ruined all of our plans and family plans that night because I was just stupid enough not to ask for directions to begin with. Uh, Anybody ever took out like a kid's toy out of its box and just threw the directions away because you're like, I got this. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, okay. I don't know what it is, but there's something about us, maybe hidden in in the human form, and like ladies are like, no, it's just guys. It's like guys are dumb, okay? They don't know how to read directions. Uh, But I don't know what it is, but there's something inside of us that would prefer to be in a place of saying, no, I got this. I got this. Now, what we're going to wrestle with today is the fact that I think a lot of us are bent on not going to our original design, but maybe jumping off of something because it looks a little bit more elegant and maybe it's a little cheaper. The cost isn't quite as great. And so what I want to do as we continue through our series, Difference Makers, is really to explore what is the original design to begin with. How do we know what God's plans for this world really are? What his heartbeat is for us and for what he wants to do through us as we we embrace this thought of being difference makers. Because I believe with everything in me that God has called every one of us in this room to be difference makers in greater Nashua and in all the world. I really believe that. But we need to embrace the original design if we're to understand that. In essence, we need to go back. If we're going to rebuild the way that God wants us to rebuild, we need to go back and study the architects, the master architect and understand what his plan, what his design for this world is. So here's what we're going to do. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where we're going to hang out today. And we're actually going to conclude our series, Difference Makers, today on this climax. If you haven't been with us before, let me catch you up. Uh, Nehemiah uh, was a guy that was about maybe 400 years before the life of Jesus, uh, about 400 BC or so. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and throw a hand up in the air. We'll get you a Bible. The story today is going to be found on page 224. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please just take one home on us. That's our gift to you. Um, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Like, no shame. You can throw your hand up and we'll make sure we get you a Bible. Anyway, Nehemiah, uh, about 400 years before Jesus, he gets this call. Uh, happens. 140 years before Nehemiah, um, the Babylonians had come into Jerusalem, to the land of Israel, and totally sacked the city. They destroyed everything, and they took the best and the brightest of the Israelites and scattered them out to the Babylonian empire. Well, eventually, the Babylonians would be captured by the Persians, and so uh, in this time, Persia is the powerhouse nation, and Nehemiah finds himself as the cupbearer to the Persian king. Well, God puts something on Nehemiah's heart that says, no, I want to go back to Jerusalem, and I wanna rebuild the city walls. And Nehemiah is so caught by this vision that he bravely goes up to the king and asks him, can I go back? Which literally would have risked his life because to ask such a thing of the king really would have put you in a place of being like, we're gonna go start our own city. And miraculously, by God's power, the king says, yes, you can go, and not only that, I'm gonna give you resources from our kingdom and other kingdoms uh, to be able to go rebuild. It was wild. And as we journeyed through this, uh, we, we found that Nehemiah went back to his hometown and not only had those supplies, but he, he, he built this vision in the people that remained there, some of the Jews that were the remnant that stayed in that area, and he built them up and said, we can do this. We can rebuild the walls. And so the people gathered up their strength and they united under this and they started the rebuilding effort. They had opposition. They had people who were in their face. We talked about that last week, what it looks like to go through opposition with the call of God. And they stayed true. They stayed faithful. And the walls were eventually completed. It's an amazing story. But that's not the climax. And rebuilding the walls is not the mission why they came back to Jerusalem. It's so much bigger than that. And today, finally, we're going to dig at the root of the issue why rebuilding the walls was so critical in the first place, and it goes all the way back to the grand design of God. So let me do this. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive into Nehemiah chapter 8. God, thank you again for this morning. We're so grateful, so grateful to be able to take a moment out of the week to quiet ourselves and to fix our eyes on you. My prayer, God, for myself and my prayer for my friends here is that you just recalibrate us, God. Align us with who you are and your purposes. Help us to understand your heartbeat for this world. And in that, God, I pray that you just inspire us and empower us to be a part of this rebuilding work in every place that you have put us. Our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our families. Let that be true of us, God, as we recalibrate on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter eight, here we go. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gates. So literally, like they just gathered all of the Israelites. They all came together in one place. And this isn't just a few. We're talking like 40 to 50,000 Israelites, Okay. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, Ezra is a priest, and if you look back in the the book prior to Nehemiah, uh, he did an an incredible rebuilding work of the temple, the place where God was to reveal his glory and to help people understand how to get aligned with him. Uh, But they couldn't finish the rest of the city because the walls were destroyed. That's why Nehemiah had to come. So Ezra is in a moment here where he's like, yes, the moment I've been waiting for. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law out before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Now, just quick background on the seventh month here. This is a really important month in the calendar of the Israelites because in this month, uh, a couple things happened. You had three feasts. You had the feast of trumpets. You had the day of atonement, and you had the feast of tabernacles. All of which went back to uh, the moment where God had redeemed them out of slavery from the land of Egypt hundreds of years earlier, and uh, the seventh month was to remember, it was to remind them of the the miraculous moment where they were purchased out of slavery and out of debt. They were to never, ever forget that. Now, not only that, but every seven years in the seventh month, they were to gather all of the Jews together to publicly read from this law that articulated this rescue that God had done in their, in their midst. Now, it was 140 years since all of Jerusalem was completely destroyed 140 years since the people had been in their city together. Well, over 140 years since everybody was gathered all together to hear this law read publicly in front of them. So, you have to get the sense this is a powerful moment. They're about to hear something some of whom had never, ever heard in their whole life. Ezra read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who can understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. They're hanging on all of these words. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion, special moments, and I'm going to read some names to you that I'm probably going to totally butcher. Here we go. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shemaiah, uh, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, uh, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, uh, Zechariah, and Meshalam. All right. Uh, now, these guys are helping him. You, you kind of get this picture that there's a whole bunch of people around him, uh, and back then, you didn't have a book like this uh, you had a scroll and no joke this scroll was probably huge I mean it's like probably this big and 13 guys you know seven and six on either side of him and they're probably helping him unroll this scroll because it's so big okay so he's got all these guys that are helping him with this Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them and as he opened it the people all stood up man that's a powerful moment you picture, like, a Martin Luther King, you know, talking in front of the, uh, the Washington Mall. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people all of a sudden rise to their feet because something massive is about to go down. They're hanging on this. They're standing up above them, and, uh, and as he opened it, the, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen they bow down and they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is not your average white, stale, plastic church, okay? Like you're not just sitting there and like being super quiet the whole time. People are shouting, they're raising their hands, they're getting down on their faces. There's a lot going on here. A lot going on. And then the Levites Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, uh, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kelita, Azariah, uh, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, <laughs> thank you Jesus for those names being done, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Don't miss how significant that is. So for hundreds of years, these people had not known this. Maybe they'd heard bits and pieces passed down from person to person, but they had never heard it like this out loud. And it was a powerful moment. Now, I don't know about you guys, but maybe for some of you, church has been a dreadfully boring place. And when you picture someone reading the Bible from daybreak till noon, we're talking six hours, you can't think of a closer place than hell. Like, like some of you, that that's like the worst, most boring thing that you could ever think of. And maybe you've been in those hardwood pews uh, that like, you know, your butt goes to sleep in about 15 minutes. Like, like church sometimes has been really hard, really boring. And, and when people read it, like you've got these guys who stand up and they've got this monotone voice when they're saying it. Maybe for some of you, you grew up and it was spoken in Latin. You couldn't even understand it. And even when it is said... In in English, maybe it's said with such a Christian culture and a voice that you never really understood it before. And so church has been a really hard place for you. I mean, why would you sit for six hours and read this? Well, what we have to understand here is that this was living for them. This wasn't something that was dead. When he read these words, it was like life that was pouring over these people because what was happening was they were understanding their identity. They were understanding who made them. They were understanding the creator and what he is like, and and they're understanding for the first time what made them a nation, what bound all of them in the first place, what happened to get them to this place where they were the people of God, and it moved them. I mean, these people are actively engaged in this moment. It's, It's significant. The law was a treasure for these people, and they treated it this way because for them, it wasn't just a law. You have to understand this. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. We don't believe this is just a book. We believe that this is actually the words of God meant for us to understand who He is, what it means to have a relationship with Him, that we can actually know the God of the universe and join him in this rescue mission that he wants to engage in this world. In fact, uh, some of the first followers of Jesus, we, man, we are so much about Jesus here. Some of the first followers of Jesus put it this way. The apostle Peter, he said in, in his letter, uh, 2 Peter one twenty one, it said, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. This is one of the major hangups of our culture today. I can't trust the Bible, it's not reliable. Why would I read it? Because it was made up by men who had a power agenda. And Peter says, no, you've got to understand this. No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. This was not a human agenda. (laughs) For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Another early follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, echoed it in a similar way. He said, all Scripture is God breathes. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. They sent out 13 Levites in this story so that everyone would understand what was said. You get this picture of Ezra reading this law and 13 people going out to groups all over the place, a thousand thousand people there, and actually articulating it for them in everyday language so that everyone, men, women and children, would know. The hope of God. It was a treasure for them. And yet we're in danger today in our culture of missing this. We're so in danger of missing how precious this is. Now, like question for you guys. If you found a map to the lost city of Atlantis with all of its artifacts, all of its treasure, the gold and everything that's precious there, and you're the only one who has that map Even if it's written in an archaic language, wouldn't you do whatever was in your power to try to understand that map and find that treasure? I don't know about you guys, but, like, I would be there, okay? There was this dude that I actually read about uh, about a year ago. His name is Forrest Fenn. No joke. He, he discovered a ton of ancient artifacts in the, in the West, uh, like Native American stuff and all sorts of really cool items. Uh, uh, popular guys like Steven Spielberg and other um, Hollywood dudes have actually purchased some of his items. Really, really wealthy. He built up this massive wealth for himself, uh, millions of dollars worth of stuff, and he actually, towards the end of his life, he's still alive, he hid all of this treasure out in the foothills somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. We don't know where. But he Gave out this riddle uh, that is supposed to give clues as to where uh, the treasure is hidden, and no joke, people have spent hours and hours and days and years of their life trying to figure this thing out. If you had treasure right in front of you, and you had a map to the treasure, wouldn't you do anything in your power to find it? Guys, this is not a book about rules do's and don'ts this is a book about treasure and in it what we find is the treasure that god is offering to us on a daily basis a relationship with him to know him and to be a part of that rescue mission forever we've lost it though we're in danger of losing it in our culture and i think some of the accessibility that we have to the Bible. Like, the, I have a Bible app on my phone. Anybody else have a Bible app on their phone? Like, my—oh, that's awesome. That's so great. Uh, that's so great. I just, like, most of the hands went up in this room. That's awesome. Um, now, like you, it's not the only app on my phone. I got about, like, 50 other apps on my phone. And if I'm not careful, that app just kind of gets lost in all the other apps on my phone. And I'm tempted, even in the moments where I'm, I'm designated time to explore who God is in His Word, I'm tempted to just jump off on a Facebook, you know, or check the weather or how are the Patriots doing? You know, something like that. Yeah, I know. I know. Calm down. Okay. I, it's going to happen later. All right. So, all right. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're tempted to lose it, to trivialize it because it's just one piece of information around us. It's not, guys. Not all apps are created equal. You can tweet that. Okay. Uh, not all apps are created equal. Man, the word of God is so precious. It's so precious. It's so precious. Now, just to give you a window into how precious it is, I I just want to give you just a quick history uh, on how we have our English Bibles, okay? It was originally written in Greek, and then it was painstakingly protected and, and, uh, I mean, just, I mean, monks through centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years, what they would do is they'd take every word in the Greek and they'd preserve it and they'd write it and write it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And they would make sure that all of these copies were just incredibly well preserved and carefully and meticulatedly, you know, protected in all the details. And they translated it then into, lang- into Latin, which was the common language after a couple hundred years. Well, they continued that tradition and the monks were just incredible at preserving this. And in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to explore the trustworthy of, uh, of the Bible, which is going to be really really powerful. You're not going to want to miss that. It's two weeks from today. Um, So if you have big questions on the uh, authority, the trustworthiness, the reliability of the scriptures, come back in two weeks because we're going to explore that in detail. Um, But uh, the monks were incredible at that. So we have a man by the name of William Tyndale, who in the 1500s, when the Bible was still in Latin and nobody was speaking it, nobody was reading Latin, he took it upon himself to translate it into English. Now, he didn't do that at a small cost. In fact, at the time, the Catholic Church was so corrupt and the leaders of the Catholic Church were so corrupt that what they did is they just, they tried to squash anybody who would ever get the Bible in its common language, everyday language into people's hands because they wanted to control what everybody did with their money and their time and their efforts. And it's wild, but in the middle of that, William Tyndale said, no, we've got to liberate people. and We have to let them know how powerful the word of God is. And so he took it upon himself to translate it all into English so that they would understand it. And he became a marked man at that point. In fact, what happened was uh, he would eventually be routed out even though hundreds and hundreds of copies of English Bible were, were spread into England and so many people liberated in the fact that they could know God. They never knew that they could have a relationship with God until that moment. But William Tyndale was found out, he was persecuted, he was put in jail, and eventually he was burned at the stake. And he's not the only story. Martin Luther translated it into the German language, and he was persecuted his whole life. Jan Hus translated it into the Czech language, and he was burned at the stake. So many people have lost their lives so that we could have this in our hands, to know the God who created us. Even today, it's persecuted in, in North Korea and in the Middle East. So for people to get a copy of the Bible, they're literally putting their, their life at risk. But men and women are willing to risk their lives because they know that the God of creation wants to know them. This is a precious book that we have. And I've heard this too. I, I have to say this. Um, I've had a lot of people lately who are like, yeah, I know it's important, but I just don't have a whole lot of time to read it you know, each week. I, I just don't have a lot of time. You know, my, my life is really busy, uh, and I'll never forget this. Uh, a good friend of mine said that he sat down with someone at one point who's articulated the same thing. Um, he said, my work life is just way too busy. It, it's, it's crazy. You know, I, j- I just don't have time. And my friend looked at him, and he said, hey, um, your work is pretty important to you, right? I said, yeah. He said, what if your CEO of uh, your company, important big company, like, what if he shot you an email and said, I want to spend every morning with you at 7 o'clock for about an hour, what would you tell him? I said, man, I'd drop everything and spend time with him. My friend looked at this guy and said, the CEO of the universe wants time with you. He wants to know you and for you to know him. What are you going to tell him? This is an opportunity, guys, and we want to help you know this word that is so precious. Now, if it's precious, the next question at that point is like, what do we do with it? What's the purpose of this? And when we read it, what's supposed to happen? All right, so let's continue. Uh, Starting in verse 9, chapter 8, verse 9. Then Nehemiah, the governor, uh, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, check out their reaction. This is what the people did when they were reading this, okay? They said to them, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send to those who have nothing prepared some food. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. In order to understand how we participate as difference makers in this world, we've got to know the grand architect and his plan. But second, we've got to allow the grand plan to show us where we've gone wrong. The people start weeping. Because as they're reading all of this, they're understanding the gap that's, that's happening now between them and God. The law is filled with all of these things that, that talk about what it means to be in relationship with God. In fact, uh, uh, rabbis later would point out 613 different commandments uh, that we're supposed to suddenly keep in order to kind of maintain this relationship with God. And the people are watching this and they're thinking to themselves, how in the world we can't keep 13, 613 commandments? We can't do this. The gap between us and God is way too great. I mean, just imagine for yourself, for those of you who got married, like if you got married and on your wedding day, you exchanged some vows and oh, by the way, you had 613 commandments that you two had to now live by. like, how'd you feel? I mean, that would be so oppressive and so shackling that in that moment, like, I'd be tempted to just say, "Uh, you know, you're awesome, but see ya, you know, like that, that would just be really hard. You can't, you can't live up to 613 commandments. Like if you had 613 commandments growing up and maybe some of you felt that way, like you're just out of the house as soon as you possibly can. But in that moment, what's causing these people to weep is they're, they're caught in the holiness of who God is and they're just broken by it now don't miss this like there's a lot of people in 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 our culture today that are saying i don't want to read the bible because it's just again it's a, a hopelessly corrupt document that's meant to really kind of exercise power over people and it's a list of do's and don'ts so there's a couple things we need to understand about that one is it loving for me to tell my kids that they can do whatever they want with their life I'm telling you right now, (laughs) if I told them yes to everything that they asked me, uh, it would not be the most loving thing. There's some times where I got to say no for their benefit. My kids wake up and they're like, Daddy, I want all the candy in the cupboard. The the most loving thing in that moment is not to say, yeah, go for it. Or like, Daddy, we want to go play in the street right now. Man, it's not loving to say yes to everything. everything. So like, if that's true of parents to kids, we got to know that the God of all the universe has got to tell us no sometimes. But way beyond that, all of this is to point out our heart and the condition of our heart. It's not a list of rules that we're supposed to break or not break. The Word of God and the purpose of the Word of God is to ultimately examine our hearts and to show us our desperate need for a Savior. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way, for we have all sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God, and this is where we get it so wrong. When we think about our lives, sometimes we're like, no, I got it. I'm, co- I'm cool. Like, I'm okay. You know, like kind of like me when I, when I get lost, you know, traveling back from Vermont to wherever we were living at the time. I think it was Beverly. I'm like, no, I got this. I got this. And we can feel like our life is good because what we're doing in, in its essence is like comparing ourselves to the person next to us. And, man, if you take a look to the person left or right, you, you get a shot, you know. Like, you might be better than them. You might have a shot at this. I know, Joe's looking at Josh. He's like, yeah, I got a pretty good shot at this. All right, so, uh, but that's not it. Like, the word of God shows you that you're not comparing yourself to someone next to you, you're comparing yourself to Almighty God. And in light of His holiness, we got no shot. No shot, and the people are weeping. They see this in the gap that they have before God, and they're saying, God help us. You can throw that image up there of this chasm that's created for us when we understand our sin. This is essentially what happens. The people are looking at the law and what they're experiencing in this moment is a great divide. They're, They're seeing the utter holiness of God and standing back and saying, we got no shot at this. There's a great chasm. And what happened there is sin. This thing that has so separated us from God, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this sin is, is this desire to not live under God's rule and reign and to love him and worship him and obey him. It's so that we can be our own king and our own God and live however we wanna live. And they're looking at this law and just weeping, man, it's too far, what do we do? So as they're looking at this and, and, and understanding all of this and, and wrestling with this thought, that we are so far from God, they're just weeping. And the, the Apostle Paul, as he said, we've all short, fall short in the glory of God, he, he knew that it didn't just extend to rules. He knows it goes to the heart because Jesus said it this way. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother has already committed murder in his heart. Jesus always takes it back to the heart. It's never about this list of things that you do and don't do. And when we take it back to the heart, man, we know that even some of our best efforts are done with wrong motives. This past week, I had an opportunity to help a couple of people move, uh, and they were in a, a pretty difficult spot. And in the middle of that, I'm telling you right now, in just the best motives that I had, I wanted to be there and serve them. And in the worst motive that I have, I'm like, hey, look at me. Aren't I so great? I can serve people. And I wish I could tell you that all of my motives right now, even communicating the word of God to you are 100% pure, they're not. Because I know myself and I know the selfishness that exists on the inside of me. Half of me wants you to know the word of God and the other half just wants to be liked. God's word examines us, it penetrates into our heart and opens us up and and examines where we're selfish before God and in that, man, we, we get this picture, we're lost. This giant chasm between where we are and God's holiness exists. And what do we do? But again, we just kind of deceive ourselves thinking that we're okay. And, and a lot of us think like, well, why would I change anything? My life is just fine. I'm not in shambles. I'm, you know, I'm good. But we're kind of like the Tacoma Bridge. When there's no wind, things are great. And it looks awesome. and It's beautiful. But you kick up just a little bit of wind. And it And can shake the whole thing making it completely collapse jesus uttered this parable at one point it was just a powerful parable he said look for those of you who put my words into practice you're like someone who builds their house on rock it's a firm foundation and when winds and storms arise and plaster that house that you've built on the rock it's going to stand because you've built the house on a firm foundation you've built it according to the design that i've given you but man You start building your life on sand, if a house is built on sand, it just takes a little bit of rain and a little bit of wind and it's gone. And so the question that we all are faced with today is, what have you built your life on? Are you betting your life that you're not gonna get (laughs) winds, even 40 mile an hour winds? Are you betting your life that success in your job is sufficient for you? Are you betting your life that your beauty and your health is what's most important? Are you betting your life on some of these things that I know you get a little wind in, a little rock in your universe, and it's going to shatter you? Man, I've talked to a bunch of you this past week, and like all of us, myself included, we're so tempted to put our hope in things that are just not going to last. And Jesus is telling us here that if we put our hope in the Word of God, trusting That he is the bridge that's going to cross this chasm. We have room to celebrate. And this is the most powerful thing about this story. Nehemiah doesn't keep them in their weeping. And I feel like a lot of churches, they kind of keep us in that place of condemnation. We're like, man, I feel terrible about myself. And a lot of us even walk out of church and we think, man, like it was the best Sunday. I felt so convicted. And you walk home feeling crummy about yourself and you feel like that's the epitome of church. No, it's not. Man, Nehemiah looked at the people and said, do not weep. This day is holy, celebrate, go home and and just, I mean, you get the best of the food and the best of your drink and celebrate like there's no tomorrow. How in the world could he say that? Well, he said it because he knew that their hope was never in themselves or in their performance, their moral performance, no matter how good or how bad that they were, they knew that their, his hope went way beyond that. His hope went into a rescuer and a rescuer that would eventually walk into this world and pay the price of our debt completely for us. In fact, Jesus is the ultimate Nehemiah who stepped into a place of brokenness, risking his life for us so that we could be repurchased back to God and reserved back to him. This is what Jesus did. This is amazing. In Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 4, it says, for what the, the law was powerless to do in that it could only reveal our weakness and our sin, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, the sinfulness on the inside of, inside of us, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering for us. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God sent his own son into this world to pay the full price for us so that we could have life forever with him. You see, this book is not an end in and of itself. It's a map, and like all maps, it's supposed to take us to the destination. And the destination is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ was the Word of God, and the Word became flesh, meaning he came into this world and dwelt among us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is what happens. You can go ahead and throw that image up there. Jesus, by the cross, bridges the gap. When we had no way, Jesus made a way. And for some of you, man, you, you know Jesus. You've had a relationship with him for a while now, but maybe you've been trusting in all sorts of different things to rescue you and save you. You've been trusting in your success. You've been trusting in your bank account. You've been trusting in getting over debt. You've been trusting in just building enough friendships around you to, 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 to keep you in a place where you're okay. And you're not leaning on the cross. And I'm telling you right now, if we lean on anything other than the cross, a massive chasm exists between us and God. And you're never gonna find that hope that you long for on a daily basis and need. For all of us, I think we need to examine our hearts and understand, man, where are we tempted to put our hope in things that just will not last? And like that bridge, our whole life is just gonna start teetering and tottering and eventually it's gonna snap unless we build our, rock, our house on the rock. And that rock is Jesus Christ. The only adequate response we can have is to shout, amen, amen, as the people did. Yes, we believe it's true. We need a rescuer. Confess it. I need a savior. Amen. Lift up their hands. This is what the people did. They raised their hands like a baby that just says, up, up. Total dependence on God. I need my savior. I can't do it on my own. And they bowed down and they laid on their face and they said, I need my God. I don't know what storms you're facing right now. I don't know what winds are pestering your house. I don't know what you're tempted to put your hope in, but I do know this right now, that if you start leaning into God and trusting Him and knowing that you can have a relationship with Him, He's going to provide you the joy that you've always wanted. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to obey my commands. And in that, this is what's at stake, your joy. He says, then my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. God wants nothing less than celebration in your life. 100% celebration in every area of your life. He wants joy in every aspect of what you do, but you will not find it unless you build your house on Jesus Christ. And he's offering that to you today. Maybe you've never trusted him and this is the first day that you, you have ever heard that you could have a relationship with Jesus. Man, he's offering that to you. All you need to do is confess, I need a savior, and I'm willing to put the full weight of my life in him today. If that's true in your heart, welcome to the family. Let's pray. God, we're so desperate for you. And it's so tempting to think, as maybe some of the people in Nehemiah's day, that the completion of the wall was the biggest problem. When in reality, it was a broken relationship with you. And in that moment where they heard for the first time that they could have a relationship with you, God, it broke them and then led them to joy. And that's my prayer, God, for all of us here is that none of us would leave today with anxiety or debilitating depression or anything that's negative weighing on us, but that we would walk out with this full sense of joy knowing that our Savior has paid the full price for us and that he loves us with everything in it. God, and I pray that that would not be something that we keep to ourselves, but that we would carry with us with all that we have into this world because there's so many people that are lonely, marriages that are falling apart, families that are disintegrating, workplaces that are so bent on profit and self-preserving success and not about using our skills and our resources to care for this world. Redeem it all, God. Let us be a part of your rescue mission and let it begin as we re engage who you are and know you by understanding your word. We love you. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.